So, in the last chapter, Moses is saying, Lord, your own children that you sent me to, they are mad at me. They don't want to listen to me. They, they have put their foot down and said, you have caused nothing but problems, Moses. You and Aaron, get out of here. And God just sort of said, okay, now, next, next on your list, uh, go to Pharaoh and talk to him. And, and Moses is like, next on the list, we already failed twice. And, and, and are, you, are you not getting this here? Do you not understand who I am? Earlier he said, I'm a man that's, I'm, I'm weak in my speech. But this time around, he says, I'm a man uncircumcised in my mouth. In other words, I'm unholy. I'm, I'm not spiritually spiritual enough to do what you're asking. I'm not that mature of a believer. I'm not in any way a leader in the way you need. I, I can't, I don't have the skills of what it would take to be a leader the way you're asking. But on top of that, even if I did have those skills, I am just not spiritually cut out for this step of ministry you're calling me to. And everything Moses said was right. <laughs> I mean, it, it is pretty amazing. I mean, he, he was 40 years old and felt it and, and knew God called him, thought everybody understood that God had raised him up as this Jew, this Hebrew, this slave kid in the palace up next to Pharaoh. And, and he was in this position and power and training and skills. It says in Acts at that point at 40, he was a man mighty in word and deed. Josephus tells us he was a commander of Pharaoh's armies and had, had won incredible victory against millions of Ethiopians and the Egyptians uh, outnumbered had won under the command of Moses. But, you know, he, he got angry. He killed the Egyptian. They buried him. And then it said, hey, they know. And he fled. And for 40 years, he has just given up any dreams at all. Now I'm getting close. I'm getting... 80 years old. I've got a few more years to live. At, uh, remember Jacob's time, he lived to be about 137. But um, after that, the number starts dropping significantly as we go on through the Bible. And the time we get to King David, he's 70 years old. Solomon was 70 years old when they died. So that was about the length of a man's life, around 70. So at this time, 80 was a pretty good old age. People lived to that, maybe even to be 100 or so, but not really too much more than that. So Moses is definitely, you know, at the twilight of his existence on earth. And of course, he would live to be 140 years old, I mean, 140 years older, older 120 years old, he would live to be. But he, he was, at 80, um, he was an old man. It was said so in the scripture. He was an aged man. He was an old man. But yet, um, God had him hang in there for a very long time in his day to complete his ministry. But again, I, I, I just think that when we're dealing with God and his mindset, 
We who come to believe have to just submit to that sovereign plan of God. Isaiah was a great prophet, a man of God. And God said, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah in the presence of the Lord was undone. And he fell down before the presence of God. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. I'm not, I, I, I am not worthy to, to be your spokesperson. You go all the way through the Bible. You don't find people volunteering. Matter of fact, Jeremiah fought it. Ezekiel fought it. God had to threaten these guys. <laughs> he had to literally threaten their lives to get them to do it. And of course, probably the bit, greatest extreme of that would be Jonah, right? I mean, he had to swallow him up in a fish and literally kill him. He was dead, I believe, in the belly of that great fish. And finally he capitulates and God spits him out of the fish and he goes to Nineveh very unwillingly. And I, and I think that we come and we just say, look at this job you want us to do, God. How, how am I able to do that and I think that's always the case you know what I, I've been pastoring this church for 32 years beyond that as an assistant pastor beyond that as a youth pastor you know my first sermon was at 16 <laughs> I was a pastor by 19 and a youth pastor and and so forth but I stand before you now 57 years old and I'm like I have no ability to, to even lead one person to Christ. I have no ability to, to argue with anybody, to convince them to a degree that the need to happen for them to come to Christ. We are always weak vessels. But as Paul learned when he said, I'm pushed above measure beyond strength, despairing of life itself. Why? So I had learned not to trust in myself, but in God. And then he later says in 2 Corinthians, so then weakness came into me in an incredible depth. And in that weakness, God said, got you where I want you. Now, now my strength can be made perfect in you. But I had to reduce you and reduce you and reduce you to give up your eloquent speech, to give up all your doctorates, Paul, to give up all of your your debating abilities, to give up that, that forceful personality that can really get in people's face and, and win your point. And, and, and you finally hear at the end of his apostleship got so reduced down into utter weakness that he didn't even see how he could live another day, more or less to the ministry. And God says, now I can show my power through you. And he says, I rejoice in my weaknesses I rejoice in all my fears. I rejoice in my infirmities. I rejoice in my poverty. I rejoice everything that's made me humanly feel diminished and weak, little by little by little. I now realize each of those things was a click to bring me lower, that your strength would be more manifest through me. Moses was a man reduced. At 80 years old, he was satisfied to be out in Saudi Arabia, Midian, the area of Midian, taking care of another man's sheep and absolutely wanted nothing more for his life but just to live out his days in obscurity, 
with not owning nothing, being a man of poverty, taking care of another man's sheep, being married, have his kids until he died, period. That he, he, he didn't not only aspire to anything else, he aspired to that. <laughs> he aspired to becoming anonymous and, and alone and, and do nothing and accomplish nothing. That was his vision. I mean, he had a very strong vision to not be effective, <laughs> to not be in any stress, to not move anybody and not to be moved by anybody. We can all get there, right? It's a pretty easy thing to do, especially in this electronic age. So I think all of us are sort of like that. Just, just leave me alone with my computer and the internet and the TV controls and, and just shut the door on your way out and I'll keep the lights off and put no intruders and just sort of bide my time until I bite the dust and and somebody else can have my crap and and uh, say la vie. There it is. I think I think that's the flesh does that to all of us. And that's where, as we walk in the spirit, God's going to help us to fight that that desire of the flesh to not be used of God. But once again in chapter 7 here, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your prophet, shall be, or your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I've commanded you. Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So God sort of ups the ante here, if you would. He's... He told Moses, my original plan is you're going to be my prophet and you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. But remember, Moses said, I can't do it. I, I just won't do it. What about my brother Aaron? He was older, three years older, by the way. So if you thought his age disqualified him, for sure Aaron's age should have disqualified him. And, uh, and of course, he hadn't seen his brother for 40 plus years. So he had no idea if his brother could talk better than him or lead better than him. You know, he might have had one eye and a limp and, or, you know, I mean, who knows what shape Aaron was in. But yet he, he was, I don't care. I don't care what shape he's in. Just throw him in there anyway. Come on, Aaron. Yeah, you only got one eye and, and one leg and you can't hear. You're completely deaf and no teeth. But yeah, God's going to use you, man. Go for it, dude. Yeah, I mean, he was ready to throw Aaron and his brother in there. No problem. So finally, God just said, okay then that's the way we're going to do it. And Moses is like, all right, I can just sort of walk in in the distance and just sort of creep over to the side and, and try to, you know, put my hoodie over my head and, and just sort of, you know, put my head down and just try to be this invisible figure on the sidelines there. And, and God is saying, you, you sort of mucked up the picture I had, Moses. So now... You're there, and you're not going to be just some sheepish figure in the corner. You're going to be predominant there. But I'm still painting Pharaoh a clear picture of who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. And in order to do that, I'm going to now need you, as you're standing there, not talking, <laughs> I'm going to now use you as somebody not speaking, but yet 
as a megaphone of God in his presence. And Aaron now will be a megaphone of speaking, but you are going to be a megaphone of just the presence. And through your presence, I'm going to display God to him. And it's as if I spoke to you, which I did, and you spoke to Aaron, which you did. God didn't speak to Aaron. God didn't tell Aaron what to say. God told Moses what to say. Moses told Aaron. So he said, okay, so we're sort of bumping things along here now. So now it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to look like this instead. It's going to, God in his compassion, you know, he, he works with us to the degree we're willing to work with him. This wasn't God's perfect plan, but this was God's permissive plan. But in, in reality, it didn't make a whole lot of difference in these few months. It's going to make a huge difference once Moses starts leading the children of Israel. And he does. And then Aaron becomes a priest in the right place. And Moses steps up and becomes the prophet. He should have been towards Pharaoh. He does become towards the children of Israel. But it just took a few months for him to get there. But these are the training wheels. And this is the way. But now I can imagine Moses hearing this for the first time. Going, so now as you stand there, stand there predominantly. You're a predominant figure. Aaron's going to be speaking, but it's just going to like, he's going to be your mouth. He, he's, he's not going to be this predominant figure in this scenario. You are still. All you did is get out, get away from talking. You, you didn't get out of this by any means. So now the way it's going to be is you're going to be as God to the people. Now, let's just think about this a minute. You got these two old dudes, one a slave that lives over around the corner in Goshen, another guy that came from the slave, should have been a slave, but he's, he's a little sh- a shepherd, which are the disgusting people to the Egyptians. They, they abhorred shepherds. And, and he's from another land, the Midian, land of Midian. He's not even from the upper epilogue of Egypt, as far as this Pharaoh knows. And you have a couple of nobody old guys coming in. And they're going to stand, they're going to get an audience before Pharaoh. And they're going to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God wants you to do. And Moses, as you stand there, Pharaoh's going to look at you, and I'm going to have him look at you and see the very presence of God through you. Who was Moses? He was a guy that hardly knew anything about God. He had pretty much for the last 40 years almost forgot about God. God showed up and said, I'm God. Well, who are you? I am. I am. That's it. That's far as you need to know right now. I am. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I heard the cry of the children of Israel. Go get him out of Egypt. Ah, no, I'm not going to do that. Yes, you are. God spoke to him. He finally believed. He received that word. And now he's going down to Egypt. And he forgot God said, Pharaoh won't listen to you. God's gonna, his heart's going to be hardened. And then God's going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let you let him go. So, but Moses forgot that. He went, and Pharaoh said, I'm not letting you guys go. Get out of here. And then he makes life harder for them. So this is what Moses knows so far. So I'm standing there as God for the people. No, well, tell me about this being God. 
Tell me, expound on that, Moses. I, I really don't know much. God spoke to me. I received it. I believe him. I'm walking in obedience. I really don't have a whole lot of other choice, to be honest with you, but I am walking in obedience. And I have about as much as I know now is just to tell you this. That's about it. But yet, before Pharaoh, he was a powerful image of God. Isn't this amazing? Because, again, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that, that the, the, it's, the power is not in these earthen vessels. The power is that God's spirit lives in us. And we become this amazing vessel of his glory, a light into the world, a salt unto the earth. Every one of us are God to the world. Did you know that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You, you know, you, you think about the thief on the cross. He's a living epistle of Christ. You know how many times I've preached the gospel for people to understand the gospel and come to Christ through the thief on the cross? Now, what was that thief on the cross? He was God. He is an example of God, the work of God, to those who that will look at his life. What did that guy do? His feet were tied. His hands were tied. He was mocking and cursing Jesus on the way to the cross. And being hung on the cross himself, he's still just trying to mock Jesus. Thinking this guy from Nazareth is any, ever at anybody. He was a nobody. He's just a stinking criminal being hung like the rest of us criminals. But there was a point he believed, and he said, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then a little bit later, he died. And that was it. But guess what that guy is today? He's a living epistle of Jesus Christ, isn't he? What did he do? He was weak. What did he do in his body? It, it wasn't about ever what happened in his body. It was about what God's spirit did in him when he believed. In the testimony of salvation through his faith in Christ, his faith in the word of God. Now he is an example of God to all of us of salvation by grace, apart from works. He'll be in the same heaven with us. So how could Moses, such a humbled, broken, weak vessel, barely scraping by, if God had said, Moses, okay, you've been in Egypt here now for a couple of weeks. It's been a little rough. I'm going to give you a second chance. If you want to go home to Midian, go ahead. How many think Moses would have taken God up on that? 
He would have been like, you, you know, there would have been dust trails and, and a, see you later. Yeah, he, he, I mean, this guy was weak. There was no strength in him. No power in him. But yet there he is. As God to Pharaoh. In his humility, in his weaknesses, in the lack of his knowledge. The power is not of us. It's of God. Look there at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. We have, such, we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Who also has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You guys are living epistles. You're as God to the world around us. You are, Jesus said continually, I am the light of the world. I am the salt of the earth. And then at the very end, he said, I'm departing. And now you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. We are as Jesus to this world. Jesus lives in us. His spirit dwells in us. And now as we go, <laughs> oh, please, I, I don't, you know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be God to anybody. I, I know, I know. It, it, because if we were to look at the letter <laughs> of being God, we wouldn't be a very good letter, would we? But if all we are is an example of the spirit of trusting God to carry me through, then we are a perfect example of God to the world. Well, Brian, I thought you were a Christian, and I just heard what you said over there. Yeah. As soon as I said it, my spirit was convicted. I sinned, and I said, God, forgive me. He forgave me. So how are you a picture of God to the world? Not by the letter, by the spirit. I, I, I'm showing you the fellowship that God has with the Son and the Son with the Father and with the Spirit and the Spirit with the Son. And, and now as, he, the, as Jesus is perfect and unified in the, the Father and in the Spirit, the three are one. So he says, now you as believers are in us, the Trinity, and the Trinity is in you in a perfect unity. So Jesus makes it clear, as I am, so also are you in this world. As I am. He says in 1 John 4, so are you in this world. So when we're tripping and stumbling and falling and we're in humility and we're in weakness, but our eyes are walking in faith, by God, we are a beautiful picture. Well, gee, Moses' picture was God's stuttering. <laughs> Moses' picture was a weak old man. Moses' picture was, yeah, it wasn't Moses according to the flesh. That was the image of God to Pharaoh. It was the presence of the Spirit of God upon Moses. That was a picture of God to them. Well, so now you need to go with this picture. God, prophet, you, Aaron, go. And he says in verse 3, And I will harden 
Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs, my wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. God says this 13 times, that either Pharaoh's going to harden his heart or God's going to harden his heart or God's going to harden the Egyptians' hearts, that, that there, this is going to be a tug-of-war battle fight going on that God could show forth his power in this spiritual battle going on between Satan and rebellious, idolatrous man and God and his people. And this, was, this is the picture that God wanted to, to give them. And so he says, uh, as clear as can be, in verse 5, And Egypt shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So again, I just say, like it says in Isaiah 55, you know, who knows the mind of the Lord? We can instruct him. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As the heavens are high above the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This is, this is God's plan. We could never help God with his plan. We could never instruct him or counsel him. As it, uh, it says in Isaiah 14, it's it just we, we can't know the, the unfathomable plans of God. So this was God's plan, knowing that Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Before Pharaoh was created, it tells us in Romans 9, before Pharaoh was even born, God saw into the future that this guy would be Pharaoh and have a hard heart. And God had already planned, after Pharaoh hardened his heart, that God would confirm that hardness and show his power through the hardness of his heart and his unwillingness to let the children of Israel go, that that's when God would show forth his power to, to them and to his own children. And in that, speak the nature of God. And I might add, the nature of Satan and the nature of the rebelliousness of man as well. Well, in verse 6 and 7, so Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So in essence, God is saying, these were two old dudes (laughs) coming to this young, good-looking, rich, you know, cutting-edge technology modernized guy and these couple of shepherds and slaves coming out of the field with their clothes and their speech and standing in the royal palace. It was as out of place as you could imagine. So how, how are these guys sufficient for this? I love that passage in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 17. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God a fragrance of Christ amongst those who are being saved, amongst those who are being perished. So let's stop here. Romans 10 says, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who spread the good news. Here it says we're a beautiful fragrance. So when we tell somebody about Jesus, Whatever it is, no matter how simple it might be, John 3, 16, or Jesus loves you, or Jesus wept, or he's coming again, or he'll forgive your sins. Whatever that is, it's a beautiful fragrance. 
Because let me tell you, when you step out of your comfort zone and you tell the world, <laughs> you, you put on the light switch <laughs> in darkness, the cockroaches don't like it, okay? When people are in sin and it doesn't look so sinful when all the lights are off and it's all dingy and they can't really see what they're doing and others can't see what they're doing, it doesn't look so bad. When you kick that light on, all of a sudden, you, you see what's really, the whole place is grungy and filthy and dirty and you, you realize what a horrible place it is. Satan doesn't like that. And people who want to be in darkness don't like that. And so death has to happen to you. So like a rose, it doesn't start smelling beautiful until it's dying. But as the rose starts dying, it gives off a beautiful fragrance. And so here he says, we, as we share, whether people believe or even if they don't believe, Either way, he says, it's a beautiful fragrance. And he goes on to expound this in verse 16. So to one, we are an aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, an aroma of life leading to life. And what does he say? Who is sufficient for these things? So to one person who says, yes, I am in sin, and yes, I do want to be forgiven, and, and God has good news for me that he'll save me and take my sins away, and he did the price, all I have to do is believe and fall. Yes, I need that. It's like, you, you, you're, the, you're the most glorious person I've ever met in my entire life. But to a person who's like, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. I don't need anybody to save me. Get away from me. Now all of a sudden, he hates your guts. You're like the smell of a dead body to them. You're a smell of death leading to more death. It's not life, a rose garden leading to more beautiful smells of roses. Quite the opposite. And then he goes on to say in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 2, for we are not <clears throat> as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. There it is. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. Do you guys hear this? God is looking at these two old dudes going in and confronting Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's just, oh, this is like laughable to begin with. Who let you old grungy Hebrew dudes into this palace to begin with? Secondly, I can barely understand you guys. Take out your teeth and let me try it again, you know? Next, I am God. You're going to tell me there's some other God that I need to, you know, I, this, is, this is making me angry. We already saw how angry he got and made all the children of Israel suffer the first time he talked to them. And now he's just hardening his heart even more. And, 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 it's death leading to death. And, and, and who is sufficient for these things? Who, who can stand and be God to anybody? But when you do that, he said, as you stand to one life and a life, another death unto death, one, it's a beautiful fragrance, another, it's, it's aroma of death. But when you stand and do that unto God, he's looking at Moses and Aaron just going, oh, I thought the creation of earth was beautiful. This is far more beautiful, looking at Aaron and Moses 
being obedient to me, standing before Pharaoh, telling him to repent and let my people go. Of course, they're looking at it going, it looks ugly because he's rejecting us. It looks ugly because he's hardening his heart. It looks ugly because they're making fun of us. It's looking ugly because he wants to persecute us for even talking to him. I wish I never opened my mouth. And God is going, on a human level, it looks ugly. It looks messy. It looks like rejection. There's going to be pain and hurt involved because you opened your mouth and spoke truth. But on my perspective from heaven, there is nothing more beautiful than I can ever behold than the feet of those who go up to spread the good news. It's a beautiful fragrance. The earth coming up to me, a beautiful fragrance. The Bible says our prayers are as incense burning up before God. But even a greater fragrance than that is those who will preach the gospel in season and out of season. Bear the sufferings of fulfilling your ministry, which is doing the work of an evangelist. What a beautiful thing. And again, who is sufficient? Definitely, these two guys weren't sufficient, but God made them sufficient. And today, God has made all of you ambassadors of Christ. God's Holy Spirit, if you're listening, yes, he's drawing you into prayer. Yes, the Holy Spirit's nudging you into the Bible. Tonight, God nudged us all here to hear the word. But let me tell you what else. God's nudging you to step out of your comfort zone. Paul says, I'm going to show you in my body, he says in Galatians 6, the scars that I faithfully preached Christ and am crucified, that I preached the cross. And I'll tell you how you, I know I preached it accurately. I'll show you the scars in my body from preaching it accurately. <laughs> he said, if I didn't, if I left the cross part out of it, it would, the fence part would be out of it. I'd have no scars. But when I preach the full message of the cross, World War III happens. And people either get born again and have eternal life forever and ever and ever because you open your mouth. Do you, can you imagine the rewards in heaven? You getting to plant a seed or water a seed or even harvest the plant? One sows, another waters, another guy gets to bear the the fruit of it, but we're all a part of it. And again, we see God rejoicing in these two feeble, old, humble, broken slaves and shepherds. And now in verse 8, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourself, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod, cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. You say, what? Why? This is so weird. Why is even God having anybody mess with snakes? Isn't that the way Satan came? Aren't snakes slimy and evil? And uh, uh. What we're going to discover, and he says it finally before the 10th and final plague, when they finally say, get out of here, God says in Exodus 12, 12, and then he says it later in, in Numbers 33, 4. He says this, I have brought judgment upon Egypt, but 
I brought Egypt, I brought judgment on all of the Egyptian gods. So they all know, <laughs> the people and all these demons know, I am the Lord God. So what God's doing here is one by one is taking the gods these Egyptians worshipped and basically shoving it down their throats and showing them that these gods are not gods, but they're demons that have oppressed them. You know, it, it, you can see it today in India where they believe, you know, everything's a god and there's reincarnation, and so every animal is somebody, grandma or grandpa, or rats running through the house. Don't hurt it, it might be grandpa, you know. Um, and so they have horrible infestations of rats. They've had a, more than one time an enormous amount of cows eating all their food, dying, their diseases, killing off hundreds of millions of Indians with disease through the various bugs, and rats and animals that they can't do anything about because they're sacred. And so literally this god of rats is, is killing them. And this is, this is throughout history. This is documented even in recent history in India. And this is sort of what God's doing. And of course, uh, the snake and, and all the various animals that came out of the Nile and that were around were gods, and of course, a serpent being thought to be wise and slick and slimy. You know, remember it was the first pick of Satan, right? The most beautiful of all creatures, the most cunning of all creatures. And so, it's not it's not uh, it's not a wonder why God picked that particular god first, right? <laughs> um, and so he he takes this these guys with the Egyptians, and he presents this snake. So you say, well, God making a snake out of a rod doesn't do much for me. And I say, you're right. It doesn't do much for me either. But you know who did it? It did a lot for Pharaoh. Because that's God. Aaron threw the rod down and boom, God. <laughs> God came from the rod. This is powerful. Wow. It was the serpent. Oh, how wonderful. The serpent. You know, we're looking at it going weird, bizarre. Take it to the circus and, and uh, you know. But that, that's not the way they would have responded. Remember, Paul points this out in, in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, uh, I'm, I'm free from all men. But at the same thing, he says, I make myself a servant to all men that I might win them. To the Jew, I'll be a Jew. To the, to the Gentile, I'll be a Gentile. Somebody under the law, or, or even demonically so under the law. I'll put myself under that, that I might win them. When you go back and it's powerful stuff when you start reading the, the stories of missionaries. But there is one point, a group of men, this has happened more than once in history, especially when the major population of the world were slaves, like in Rome. And then after that, that you would have colonies and groups of islands of people that only were slaves. You'd have millions of slaves out in the middle of some desert mining something, or out in the middle of Africa mining something, or out in the middle of Indonesia, you know, mining something, or in some rigorous labor in some factory. And, and they would just be marched 
to sleep, to eat, to work, until they died. And there's people that literally, free men, who sold themselves into slavery. So I'll give you a lot of money, sir, if you will make me a slave and put me as a slave on that island. Or take me into the deep part that only slaves are at and let me be there. And they would go and be a slave to preach the gospel to them. Paul is in essence saying, you know, I'll do whatever. Um, boy, you go back and, and, and look at David Livingston or Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the first guy who let his hair grow out and put his hair in the Chinese queue and cut his hair back to look like a Chinese man. The, the English completely rejected him. They cut off his support, made up lies about him. Literally, he lost every bit of his support financially from England. And rumors were going about because he was wearing the dress of a Chinese man and, and the hair of a Chinese man, eating the food of the Chinese, where the English missionaries at that point would go in. They'd live on the coastal cities. They would live in the English colonized vi villages, and they would go out for a day from there as long as they could get back to their homes and preach the gospel to the Chinese or the Chinese that were servants to them and working in their factories that they had preached to them. But Hudson Taylor wanted to go to inland China, and he was horribly persecuted by Christians for doing that. When it's right here, Paul said, I'll be all things to all men that I might win some. He says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak, I'll become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might be all things to some people, to some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partakers of it with you. So God is, in essence, making Moses and Aaron speak in a language the Egyptians can understand to start having this conversation about God, right? And now they're, they're thinking God. <laughs> their, their senses are up. They're looking at the supernatural. They're looking at the miracles. They're seeing the serpent. They identify with the serpent. They identify it as God. It's, it's something that is inquisitive to them. And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded in verse 10 here. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and his servant, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same in the same manner with their enchantments. And every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now, some of you guys might be freaking out here going, what? I thought a miracle is only something God could do. Guys, a miracle is simply changing the natural processes of everyday life and, and, and rearranging them out of the ordinary. So later, they're going to go through the Red Sea. The waters will open up in the middle of the sea, and they'll walk across on dry ground. Then the waters come back. That doesn't typically happen in nature. There are examples of earthquakes and the waters pulling back and great uh, tsunamis and so forth. So I'm not saying that it doesn't happen to a degree in nature, but the perfect timing of the waters rescinding, being completely dry, they walk across them, then the perfect timing, the Egyptians, the water coming and killing Egyptians. You know, this is a miracle. 
And, and so I just, I simply want to, to help you understand that when Lucifer, the chief angel of God, was created, he was the most beautiful of all creatures. This is what God said. But he was also the most powerful of all creatures. And now when he is ascended, descended to earth with all those angels that followed him, one third of the angels followed him, and our demons here now, they all came with supernatural powers. If God brought Michael the archangel here right now, he would have supernatural powers. Okay? So, um, again, there's examples of it all the way through the Bible. So, we should not be surprised that demons, and of course Satan himself, has supernatural powers. Now, the Bible makes it clear that they're limited. They are limited. God will stop it and not allow them to go beyond a certain thing. And if they do, he'll lock them up and put them in prison, not let them out. And this is what we find when we come to the book of Revelation. That some of these demons that were locked up through the history of mankind, all the way back into Genesis 6, when the demons were basically somehow possessing men and then having sex with women and creating a supernatural demon, angel, human cross pollination person and this is a big end part of why God had to destroy the planet earth because of this Nephilim that were created when the sons of God had relations with the sons of women and created them it's it's a bizarre thing it's like how, what I gotta go back and read my bible where's that you know yeah I know but those demons in the tribulation period God's gonna actually let them loose and let those demons come back on earth to torment man in the tribulation period God has hindered Satan up to a point to deceive man. But yet we learn in 1 Timothy 4 that as we come into the last days, as we see the signs of the time, and guys, they're here. We're going to have a prophecy update this year. And I hope to bring everything into clarity for you and help your walk with the Lord. Because we are in the last days, and we've got to walk in a different circumspectful way if we're going to endure and make it to the end. But it says that the, there'll be new doctrines of demons. And that many will depart from the faith because these, this uh, deceptiveness is at a greater level. And uh, in, in Matthew, and Jesus taught, he said in the tribulation period, it gets so crazy that God has to end the tribulation period early because no, no, not even the children of Israel who were saved in the tribulation period, the elect would make it to the end because the deception of Satan was so great. Let me show you a couple of verses here in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine through twelve, and we are out of time. So it says here real quickly, Second Thessalonians two, verse nine through twelve. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusions that they may believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This, this is crazy. God is saying that his Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting men of sin and righteousness of judgment, leading the loving kindness and goodness of God, leading men to salvation. And men are just going to rebelliously keep resisting the Lord, resisting the Lord until we come into this last phase before the rapture of the church happens, where the earth becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah, 
where the earth becomes violent and the hearts of men become evil continually like the days of Noah, which we are seeing, guys. And in that time, men doubled down like Pharaoh. And in the book of Revelation, it actually gives this example. It says what's going to happen now is exactly what happened with Moses in Egypt. And even some of these same plagues are, are repeated in the tribulation period and actually quote this. And they quote that now man's heart is so hard that God is actually going to give Satan more power and a greater lying wonders. They're not true miracles, by the way. It'll look like he raised somebody from the dead, but he didn't because only God has that power. And if you look at what Satan does, he makes snakes. He makes polluted water more polluted. He makes an enormous amount of frogs, more enormous amount of frogs. <laughs> he doesn't do anything good with his miracle powers. It's not like he feeds the poor or heals people or, or makes anybody's life happier. He may give them more lust and more stuff to consume to destroy themselves, but he doesn't have the ability to, to do a miracle to bless anybody like God does. But God says he's actually going to allow Satan to be more powerful in these last days so people that are hardening their heart will for sure harden their heart in case they accidentally hear the gospel and get saved. I don't want them to accidentally get saved. He says, I'm going to harden their hearts through the deceitful signs of Satan to make sure now that they have rejected me, their rejection of me stands. That's why the Bible says, don't receive the gospel in vain. Today is the day of salvation. Not the day you choose, the day God chooses. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful thing to take a look. And we're not going to look at this now, but for your own notes, look at Revelation 13, verse 13 through 14. And, and it says that Satan does such miracles on the earth that all the entire earth can not doubt that he's God <laughs> because they don't know what you know right now they believe like a lot of people believe only God can do miracles and now this antichrist and this beast and this false prophet are doing these incredible miracles and only God can do miracles so they have to be God that's how stupid they are that's how ignorant of the truth they are and that's what he says right there in Thessalonians, because the ignorance that is within them that's caused them to harden their hearts, that ignorance would stand, the hardness of heart would stand. God's let the strong deception just go right to the core throughout the planet that they would not believe. Guys, understand, if you're here tonight and you're not walking with God, if you're listening to this on the internet or on the radio, or podcast or streaming right now, Wherever you're hearing this message, whenever it gets delivered to you now or 10 years from now, if the Lord tarries, this prophecy stands. Tonight is a strong message of warning to not toy with God in his grace. That God is a God of truth and a God of justice. And God is not coming to you saying you can give him some half-hearted commitment and that's good enough. You know, it's you know, baby steps. I'm, no. You are a sinner. Your sins are leading you to hell. And if you do not repent, you will go to hell. And if you think that you're stepping in sin, your heart won't get hardened. Your heart won't get seared. Your conscience won't get seared. 
you're wrong. If you can not yield fully to God right now, you will not be able to yield to God that much easier the next time and the next time. And every time you know to come to Christ and repent and don't, you are inoculating yourself against the truth. And now we are in these last days. The strong delusion is here. People are believing ridiculous, ridiculous lies. And you are evil if you try to even have a conversation different than what the spirit of this age is saying. You can get fired from your job for even acting like you're going to think a thought different than what the status quo of political correctness is. Get kicked out of your apartment. Won't be allowed on the bowling team anymore. Whatever it is, it's, it's unreal. We are sensing what many generations before us have sensed, that you are getting in or you're never getting in. But today is the day of salvation. You need to repent and fully surrender your life into the will of God. It's not about praying a prayer. Nowhere in the Bible says pray a prayer. It says believe on the Lord Surrender your will, your life to him, and give your life to Jesus as being Lord, God, Master, Savior. He is your all in all. In him you're living and moving and having your being. And follow him with all your heart starting right this moment. Amen. Lord, we ask right now that there's no compromise here. We ask that all lukewarmness would be gone, that any lukewarm hearts would be dissipated, that all of us, Lord, would have a fiery on heart just to say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Forgive me, cleanse me, heal me, wash me, purify me. I surrender my life to you. And revive all our hearts to the truth of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.